when I'm in real writing mode, and I've been a full-time writer for more than a decade, I sit down at my desk at nine o'clock in the morning. I use an app called Freedom, which cuts off my internet access. And I have it on from nine until 1.30 p.m. And I write for that, all those you know four and a half hours, not writing continuously. And then I try to write 750 words. And if I write more than that, it's normally rubbish. If I write less than that, I don't care. As long as I've been there at the screen, at the keyboard, and absolutely focused with no distractions around at all. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place, and I know that living is often a painful, difficult, and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination, and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets, and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. If you are concerned about the future of humanity, about the quality of life on planet Earth, this interview is for you. Today, my guest is Roman Krisnarek. Roman is founder of the world's first empathy museum. He's a founding faculty member at the School of Life in London, and he's an empathy advisor to organizations including Oxfam and the United Nations. Roman is author of at least six books, with his latest book, The Good Ancestor, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking. Roman has also given a TED Talk called How to Be a Good Ancestor. It was released in October of 2020. It's already been viewed more than a million times. This book and this TED Talk contain many insights about what it means to live well, to be responsible, to take care of the earth, to look forward to those who will come after us, and in many ways to practice what indigenous cultures have called seventh generation thinking. But as a practical matter, how do we do it? Well, Roman breaks that down, gives us some specific ideas and some inspiration. In this conversation, we talk about transcendent goals, what they are, why they matter, what it means to be a good ancestor, how to do it. We talk about the idea of being a time rebel, someone who is committed to the idea of intergenerational justice and someone who practices deep love for the planet. We talk about something Roman calls the marshmallow brain versus the acorn brain. We also talk about the idea of citizens assemblies, cognitive empathy, what it is, why it matters, how to practice it. Roman says, and I agree with him, that at this moment in history, our species is suffering from an acute crisis of perspective. Here's one example. From 1970 to 2016, the average period of stock holdings on the New York Stock Exchange fell from five years to just four months. I thought that was an interesting fact. And by the way, with this book, The Good Ancestor, The Edge from U2 says of this book 
This is the book our children's children will thank us for reading. You can find Roman online at romanchrisnarik.com. Krisnarik is spelled K-R-Z-N-A-R-I-C. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend and deeply thoughtful human being, Roman Krisnarik. Roman, welcome to the School for Good Living. It's fantastic to be here. Really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Will you tell me, please, what's life about? I think going back through all of human history, humankind has asked themselves this question. What is life about or framed in other ways? Who am I? How to live the good life? These are all the questions which ultimately are in the back of our minds as we contemplate our births and our inevitable deaths. And if I think about this question, I think one of the things that I come down on is the importance of having a transcendent goal, a, an objective in life, what the ancient Greeks called a telos, something bigger than yourself that kind of gets you out of bed in the morning, something that stretches beyond the boundary of the ego. Now, it could look very different for different people. For some people, it might be keeping the family business alive or looking after your kids or finding a cure for cancer. I mean, there's all sorts of different things, but I think the, the key, and I think this is one of the lessons that I have taken out of my study of human history and culture, is that it's not enough to look just inside yourself. One has to have something outside yourself in order to find meaning, to find purpose. And of course, I'm not the first person to say this. You can pick up Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, or many others, and find a similar kind of message. And I think one of the really important things about it is that the result is that the goal that you might have may not necessarily bring you great joys and happiness in a day-to-day sense. It gives you something bigger than that. All right. Well, thank you for that. I want to start this conversation by asking you about your role as a gardener. I understand that you spent time planting trees at Oxford College, and you've learned a few things from that and since then, but will you tell me why did you plant trees and what did you learn? That's such a beautiful question. (laughs) I became a gardener partly because I was frustrated with being an academic. I had been a political scientist for some years. I'd written a PhD about politics. And I felt it was time to put my hands in the soil. And so I did a qualification as a gardener. And then I got a job as a very lowly paid sort of fourth undergardener at an Oxford college. And so immediately there was something very interesting for me going on because at one, you know, just a few months before I'd been teaching at universities like 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 Oxford. In fact, I've been teaching at Cambridge University, sitting on the high table. And then the next moment now I was on the low table as a as a gardener and I was having these college professors walking past me and students walking past me, ignoring me as I was sitting on my hands and knees, weeding in the rain. And I think, in a way, I learned two things. One, I learned something about respect. I hadn't really realized that I needed a kind of sense of recognition from others so much. Just that nod of someone, someone saying hello to you as they're walking past you, as you are weeding on your hands and knees. I I had until then thought I'm a kind of self-sufficient person. But actually <laughs> I realized that, you know, I didn't want them to tell me I was a brilliant gardener. I just wanted them to say hello. Because ultimately what I realized is here I was with the other gardeners trying to make this 
incredible Oxford College garden, beautiful and ecological and put in bat boxes and introduced native ferns and things. And no one seemed to be taking any notice. And so there was a lack of human relationship in it. And that was very important for me because I realized that actually I'm not immune to the need for some kind of recognition, let's say. You know, it's an acknowledgement of humanity at its basis sense. I guess the second thing I learned was something about time. I remember this moment when the head gardener said, okay, we're going to plant a hundred trees. And I said, why? Look, there are, there are beautiful, huge trees all around this garden that's been here for hundreds of years already. And he said, well, look, look at those willows on the riverbank. They're going to be dead in 50 or 70 years. So we've got to put something in their place. And of course, that there is an ethical lesson, a lesson that could be found in most religions or ethical systems, which is the idea of you know, planting a seed, a tree that you'll never see mature within your own lifetime, seeing yourselves as part of an intergenerational lineage of some kind that stretches long into the past and far into the future. And I think that idea, you know, of planting the seed, planting a sapling, you know, we can, most of us can connect with that. You know, we've grown, whether it's basil in your kitchen or planted a, a giant oak tree in your garden, if you have one, but can connect with that idea of something existing way beyond us, but having brought it into existence. And so I think that experience of being a gardener and just planting a lot of trees, backbreaking work actually, <laughs> was actually really wonderful because it took me out of those short-term cycles of time that we are also caught up in. You know, we're looking at our phones on average 110 times a day, but that short-term immediate gratification response is only part of who we are. You know, we have evolved to think long-term. It's just we don't switch on that part of our brains very much. What do you think of that? Well, I didn't believe that I was a person who looked at my phone that many times a day until I installed Moment on my on my iPhone and was shocked to see that it's pretty close, quite that high. It's a little lower, but still. It's shocking. I tried Moment as well. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. But then, you know, I explained that away by saying, look, my phone is my flashlight to help me find my way to bed. It's my alarm clock. First thing when I wake up, you know, and every so much in between my camera, you know, like it is for pretty much all of us, our clock, but this, this idea of, you know, short-termism and, and what I love and what you're saying is that that's only one part of us, but the other part, that long-term perspective or this, the one that has the sense of being connected to something greater than ourselves, I think we have an innate, you know, yearning for that, but we don't know how to find it now that our society's institutions are breaking down. And that's one of the things I'm super interested to explore with you is, is what you call an acute crisis of perspective, something that we're, we're suffering from as a society. And you say that the most important question of our time is how can we be good ancestors? Why do you say that's, that's the most important question of our time? Well, I have to admit that I did steal that question in a way from the great immunologist Jonas Salk, who developed the first polio vaccine in the 1950s. And in later life, he said that the great question facing us was, are we being good ancestors? So I've sort of slightly twisted it to make it a little bit more practical, a bit more pragmatic. You know, what actions are you going to take rather than just con contemplating the, the issue? But I think that the idea of the good ancestor is beautiful and powerful. And certainly when I came across it, it 
was like the scales falling from my eyes because I don't know about you, but you know, I thought quite a lot about intergenerational justice in the past. You know, our, our the way, for example, that our political institutions don't give a voice to future generations, but those future generations sort of felt like sort of out there, a little bit abstract. And when you ask the question, you know, how can I be a good ancestor? Well, this is a question about me and what I do in the world. It's not an abstract political ideology or anything like that. And we can bring these things into the very personal level. And that's sort of certainly part of the motivation of why I wrote a book called The Good Ancestor, because I was thinking, in fact, when I was first researching the book, actually, about my kids. I've got 12-year-old twins. And I suddenly started thinking, well, look, my daughter could easily be alive in the year 2100. You know, she'd be 92. And so that future, I realized, isn't science fiction. It's an intimate family fact, you know, just one step away from my own life. And I think we often, when we're thinking about the long term, we're thinking, uh, you know, Blade Runner 2049 and the, the world of the machines taking over. And, you know, that's one way into starting to stretch beyond the the tyranny of the now that we're caught in and getting that longer perspective. But actually, we can come to something more personal, like a child in your life, you know, a nephew or niece could be anybody, and thinking that they could live and then their child, their own child or grandchild could live well into the 22nd century. And that brings up a lot of questions about how we each as individuals think about the future. Do you have a see that future as a utopian world full of organic farmers markets and driverless cars? Or do you see a world on fire? But whatever you think, certainly the conclusion I came to was that, look, if I care about my daughter's life and then her daughter or son's life, then I need to care about all life because my daughter in 2100 isn't existing all alone. She is part of a web of human relationships, the community she's part of and families and neighbors, but also she's part of the web of the living world. You know, the air she breathes and the water she drinks. So if I care about her, that the next step has to be to care for something much more transcendent or universal you know and i think in a way this is one of the great questions of the art of living which is how do we shift from the individual to the collective from the personal to the transcendent and i think as human beings we often need bridges to do that yes you can go and you know sit on a, in a mountain in the himalayas and get to that place of transcendence that is one way but i think a more everyday way is there's just one example think about a young person in your life when they're, they're older and try and make that connection and think about its implications. I think that's a really a beautiful perspective. And I remember it was just a few years ago that I learned, like maybe I became aware that we're always living into some future. We have some concept of what the future contains. What, what do you mean by that? So as an example, I have a daughter who's now 17 and I asked her how she and her friends saw the future. Like, and I think I probably asked it in a leading question, like a le as a leading question about, do you think, you know, that we'll survive as a species or something like that? And her response was no. Her response was basically, me and my friends think we're all screwed. Like, there's no hope. You know, we're destroying the environment. Politics are screwed up. The wealthy income inequality just continues to widen. You know, like, basically, we're all screwed. And I know that we all have a vision, you know, based on, usually based on the past, it's some kind of extrapolation, 
into the future, you know, that we're living into. And then that then shapes how we behave. But I know we, we're not always aware, you know, first of all, we're often wrong, <laughs> right? But we're often not aware of those, what we might call worldviews or paradigms or frames. And that idea that we can choose another one is it's really fascinating to me. So as you talk about this, about being a good ancestor and looking to the future, you know, I wonder how much of this work is like a moral, like there's a moral imperative to it of choosing to believe or commit to, you know, a certain kind of future. That's an interesting question. I think there is a question here about human agency. I mean, I believe that nothing in history is inevitable until it happens. And that if you look through the human past, we have taken as individuals, but also collectively decisions to go in different directions. So just one example, you know, I live in the United Kingdom. Now the United Kingdom is no longer a colonial power in India. You know, I can no longer buy a slave, whereas I may have been able to do that several hundred years ago. Now, of course, the world is still full of the historical impacts of colonialism and slavery, but there have been shifts. There have been shifts in social structures and politics and all sorts of things. So, you know, I was just thinking about your your 17-year-old daughter and, and her friends thinking that we're all screwed. You know, I get that feeling. You know, I understand that. And I can look at the darkest moments of human history, the continuous failures of empathy on mass scales, the Crusades, the Rwandan genocide, the Holocaust. But then I can also see moments of hope without being crazily optimistic. But, you know, human beings live twice as long as they used to live, you know, at the beginning of the uh, you know early 19th century. Or there have been incredible medical discoveries that a lot of us are able to benefit from. Or... My wife, when she gave birth to our twins, didn't die in childbirth because of basic medical discoveries. So I think there's something there about recognizing the importance of human agency. There's a wonderful book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, where she talks about how humans are really good in a crisis. You know, how we come together after a Hurricane Katrina or a 9-11 and we take action because we do. You know, we are good in a crisis. Now, I'm not saying... There is any easy magic bullet solution to the climate emergency or ocean acidification or biodiversity loss or institutional racism. But I believe in our power to act. But in order to act, I think we need to have sort of sets of values that are motivating. Now, the question then, at least because in the last few years, I've been thinking a lot about our relationship with future generations. This question is like, why should I care about those future generations, right? You know, Groucho Marx famously said, yeah, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? You know, but I think the moral imperatives are there, but you can get to them in different ways. So I can say to someone, look, there are 7.7 billion people alive today. But in the next 50,000 years, an estimated nearly 7 trillion people will be born. Or even the next two centuries, tens of billions of people will be born. And they far outnumber us. So surely, you know, just doing things for ourselves can't be okay. You know, surely we need to bring their voices into the room in some form. Or one might go down another route and think about the fact that, you know, we have inherited such extraordinary things from the past 
you know, like medical discoveries. And, um, and the question is, well, what are we going to pass on to the generations of the future, like an intergenerational golden rule? Of course, some things we don't want to pass on. We don't want to pass on institutionalized racism, which has been embedded in policing systems and judicial systems. But I think if you put those things together, I think there is a kind of a message, not of optimism, but hope, not optimism in the sense of, you know, a glass half full thinking that everything's going to be all right, despite the evidence. I think a hope based on the fact that throughout human history, we have struggled for each other. And we've often done things for future generations. We, after the Second World War, set up the World Health Organization or the European Union or uh, welfare systems ar ar around the world in many countries. So there's there's some seed of possibility in all of that. Yeah. And of course, these are ideas that you you lay out in your book, The Good Ancestor, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking. And I read this book and I found I found a lot of ideas that were that were powerful. There were some that were challenging. I'm curious, why did you write this book? Like, Who did you write it for? And how did you want the world to be different because this book is in it? Well, I partly wrote it out of a sense of frustration. I kind of was beginning to notice what I think of as a conceptual emergency, which is lots of people talking about the need for more long-term thinking and everything's too short-term. Oh, those politicians can't see beyond the next election or the latest tweet, the businesses that can't see beyond the quarterly report, the nations that sit around international conference tables bickering away while the planet burns and species disappear. And of course, the individuals, all of us, most of us who are clicking the buy now button all the time. And don't we need more long-term thinking? I was reading everywhere, whether it's in public health care or to deal with inequalities or to deal with the climate crisis or deal with tech risks. But what I wasn't seeing was people talking in more depth about, well, what is long-term thinking really? Are there different kinds of long-term thinking? Is it always good for us? How long is long-term thinking? So it was partly an intellectual frustration, but I think with all the books I've written, there's always something more personal there, which is a challenge for myself to live up to the ideals that I think are important. So I wrote a book called Empathy because I think I thought I wasn't very good at empathizing. I've written a book called The Good Ancestor because I think there's a lot more I could do to be a good ancestor. And so it's a kind of form of exploration. And it reminds me actually of this crazy book I once read about called But Beautiful by a British writer called Jeff Dyer. And it's all about jazz. And apparently he was doing some research in the New York Jazz Library. And one of the librarians came up to him and said, oh, so you are an academic working on jazz? And he said, no. And the person said, well, then are you a, a musician looking for some new music? And and he said, no. And he said, well, what are you doing here? And he just he said, well... I'm just really interested in jazz. I don't know much about it. So I thought I'd write a book on it, you know, wow. to find out. I thought that's a good reason to write a book. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Well, this, you know, one of the ideas when I talk about it introduced me to some new, some new ideas and some new perspectives. One of them was this idea of colonizing the future. I thought that was a really interesting insight. And you, so let me ask, what do you mean by that? You say, if I understand you right, that we are colonizing the future. In the same yes. way that we've colonized in the past, but that was physically, and we went somewhere. What? How do you colonize the future? What does that mean? Yeah, it's a good question. So, what I mean by that is the idea that we treat the future like a distant colonial outpost. This is particularly in wealthy countries where we feel we can freely dump ecological damage and technological risks and public debt and all sorts of things as if there was nobody there. And I really came to this idea of colonizing the future through 
thinking about my own history I've been part of as someone who's Australian and part of a colonial culture. Because when Britain colonized Australia in the 18th and 19th century, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius, nobody's land. They treated the continent as if there was nobody there. Of course, there were. There was. There was the indigenous population. And I think that now, alongside the struggles for indigenous land rights against terra nullius, which is still going on in Australia and around the world for indigenous peoples, alongside terra nullius, there's also what I think of as tempus nullius. We treat the future as nobody's time or an empty time where we feel we can kind of pillage it as we please. And the tragedy is that future generations aren't here to challenge this pillaging of their inheritance. You know, they cannot stage a sit-in like a civil rights activist. You know, they cannot go on a salt march to defy their colonial oppressors like Mahatma Gandhi. They have no political rights or representation or voice. They have no influence in the marketplace. So really, that's what the essence of the idea was about, a kind of a, a grabbing of the riches that are there in store. Yeah. And you, you go on and you support this by talking about how even, you know, 40, 30, 40, 50 years ago, there was virtually no discussion of future generations in policy and other kind of legal documents, legislation and so forth. But that term is coming up more and more in this idea of intergenerational justice, which is one, again, I mean, I'm just amazed. I'm, I'm often amazed at how basically everything in language is something we made up. <laughs> and there's these possibilities just waiting for us to recognize or realize or live into them. And this is one of them. And, and you talk about, so in, in this book, you write, in the decade I spent researching democratic governance as a political scientist, it simply never occurred to me that future generations are disenfranchised in the same way that slaves and women were in the past. That's a pretty big claim, but it resonated with me. I was like, I think that's totally true. And this idea of future generations and, and a word perhaps that gives, I don't know, some more concreteness to this is this idea of a future holder. So when you talk about a future holder, what do you mean by that? You know, when I write my books, I spend a lot of time trying to invent language, metaphors, new kinds of narrative to give shape to thoughts and feelings that we might have. So, you know, we've just talked about the idea of colonizing the future. And another one is the idea of a future holder. It's a bit playful in a way, the idea that, okay, we know about shareholders and stakeholders, but what about future holders? And of course, in some sense, it's falling into the language of financialization, you know, linking it to the idea of a shareholder. But why not think about those who have a claim on the future, future, those generations yet to come? And I recognize that different language works for different people. In the book, I also talk about the idea of time rebels, people who are committed to intergenerational justice. And again, that's trying to find a a kind of a, a language that works. And I think, you know, in so many of the great philosophical issues and moral issues that we are exploring in our lives and in our societies, you know, often there are already the great ideas lying around if we know where to look. So when it comes to intergenerational justice, well, you can easily look to uh, Iroquois or Lakota Nation people, all sorts of or First Nations peoples in in, uh, in Canada, who've drawn on ideas, for example, of seventh generation decision-making, making community decisions based on the impact seven generations from today. Even in the Moluccas Islands uh, in Asia, they use seventh generation decision-making. I spoke to a village elder recently. He said, well, we look forward 
seven generations and backwards seven generations as well. And so a lot of indigenous cultures have something in there. Then the question is, okay, how can we respectfully not steal, but adapt those ideas into a hyper-individualist consumer society, you know, so it can do some work in Miami or Shanghai or Dubai. You know, that's harder work to do, but I think it's possible. Yeah, and the challenge of that, you quote some research in the book where you talk about individuals. So I don't have this right in front of me, but it was something about when people are asked about the future. They can typically imagine five to 15 years out, maybe something like that. But as a society, we tend to have like a 30 year horizon. That's like one generation. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's hopeless, isn't it? Yeah. So how do we even engage in this work of seventh generation thinking? Like, what does that even look like as a practical matter? How, I mean, how do we do that? Yeah. It's a good question. So here's one example. In my book, I talk about six different ways to think long-term. And one of them is the idea of cathedral thinking. So that's the idea of embarking on projects or policies with very long time horizons, decades, even stretching beyond your own lifetime or your career span. And if that sounds a bit utopian, actually, you can look through human history and find so many examples of this. Of course, the idea of cathedral thinking is named after those medieval cathedral builders who started building their religious edifices, knowing that they would never be finished within their own lifetimes. Like, Ulminster in southwest Germany was begun in 1377. Well, it wasn't finished for more than 500 years, 1890. Think of the Great Wall of China or the sewers built in Paris and London in the 19th century, which are still used today. Think of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, founded, I think, in 2008, which is collecting millions of seeds in an indestructible rock bunker in the Arctic Circle that's designed to last for a thousand years. So, There's a historical story we can tell ourselves, which is we are really good at this thing. You know, we have a capacity to think beyond the here and now. It's not the narrative we tell ourselves in society. We think of us as being driven by short-term rewards. And that then links to, I think, something else that I, I think is worth thinking about, which is, is there even a neurological basis to long-term thinking, to look inside our own minds? And I believe there is. I think inside the human brain, There is a struggle going on between the drivers of short-term and long-term thinking. I think of it as the marshmallow brain and the acorn brain. You know, do we party today or save for our pensions for tomorrow? Do we upgrade the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? And of course, we think a lot about that marshmallow brain that's driving us, the neurological drivers towards instant gratification, getting the dopamine rush. You know, it's named after the famous marshmallow test, of course, where kids had a marshmallow put in front of them. And if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, you know, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow and the majority of kids couldn't resist. But there's this other part of our brains, which I call the acorn brain, you know, which is all about long term thinking and planning and strategizing. And it's more developed in humans than in most other creatures. So a chimpanzee, you know, does plan ahead a little bit and they might get a stick, strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke in a termite hole. But they'll never make a dozen of those tools and set them aside for next week. But that's what we do as humans. That's how we save for our kids' educations or how we voyage into space. So there's a narrative there to tell ourselves that we're not just short-term thinkers, we're also long-term acorn planters. And I think social change is so much about telling ourselves different stories about who we are. And that's one of the new stories I'm trying to tell us, tell to tell everybody, <laughs> anyone who'll yeah. listen anyway. Yeah, uh, I love that. And 
and I'm reminded of that idea that all learning is really just remembering. So perhaps it's really just helping people remember what they forgot, you know, or never consciously knew. One idea you you discuss in this book that gave me, I would say that gave me hope or in which I found hope was this idea of social contagion, right? Because if, and, and you've talked about this, I love this view of having a bridge from the personal to the transcendent or from the me to we, or however you'd want to say it. But this idea that I'm just one person, what difference could I possibly make? But then just this, I think it was like a sentence talking about social contagion and drops becoming ripples and the importance of anything that any one of us does. Will you talk a little bit more about, you know, as we do try to bring this down to the individual level and, and action, what can I do? I know you, it's not a book of specific prescriptions exactly, like a checklist, you know, but but why is social contagion an important thing that might be a very useful concept for us to hold on to as we work to to engage in this long-term thinking you're talking about? Well, I think when it comes to tackling the great long-term challenges of our time, like the ecological crisis, these crises are so urgent that on some fundamental level, they require collective action. They require social movements, direct action, legal struggles, all sorts of things. But you know, no movements can sustain themselves without individuals who remain energized and motivated and engaged. And I think thinking about what we can do as individuals also matters as well. But there's a kind of type of individual action, which is somewhere in between just me doing something for my own life or in my own life and collective action. And that's the idea of individual actions that can be amplified, that have a social contagious aspect to them. I mean, let me give you the most practical example, which is on the roof of my house. I've put solar panels on my house, my partner and I did years and years ago when they were actually really expensive. We knew the price would drop, but we had the means in our case to put them on the roof and help bring the market price down, as it were, to be part of that group. And then, you know, if you ever look at maps of where solar panels are, it's really fascinating. They, You can see them, they just spread through neighborhoods. In other words, someone sees them on their neighbor's roof and they get them themselves and they, they spread around. And it's a really very practical and lovely way that social contagion kind of can emerge from an individual action. And that pertains in different ways. In fact, just the other day, my partner and I, we got rid of our fossil fuel car and switched to using the local electric car club. So a couple of hundred meters away from us, there is a car plugged into a lamppost, which is part of a cooperative. Um, and you can you can you know join it for five bucks and it's, it's really cheap and uh, we no longer we've recycled our fossil fuel car but what's really interesting is you know it's not easy for our lives actually that that little change because you know how do we get our kids to a football match and so on even during COVID-19 some of these issues are coming up but we're talking about it to people and people are saying oh I can't see your car parked outside your house anymore where is it gone and we've been actually we bought loads of chalk colored chalk and we've been drawing sort of art you know pictures onto the the road where our car was just for fun you know and then but people stop and look at it look at it right but again that's about trying to engage beyond the individual act find things that can spread yeah that's awesome i i know i often have the sense that what i do doesn't really matter but i'm grateful when i i encounter a reminder that it does or at least it can <laughs> so and speaking of chalk, this is one thing I do want to ask you about. Toward the end of the book, you talk about a rechalking festival that you participate in. 
what is this and why do you do it? That was the most marvelous segue that I've ever heard. Great question. So in the book, I talk about something that I got engaged with, which is a ritual called chalking the horse. And what it refers to is this incredible Bronze Age monument, 3,000 years old, which is carved into a chalk mountainside about 20 miles from where I live in Oxford in the UK. It's called the White Horse of Uffington. And basically, they've cut out the grass and revealed a gigantic horse, which is white because of the chalk basis. And you can see it from miles around. It's like 100 meters long. So it's been there for thousands of years. But there's a ritual that's been developing, has developed for the last thousand years, where the local villagers each year go up the hill and take out the weeds and bash new bits of chalk, stone into it with hammers to preserve this incredible uh, monument. And so I went with some friends from an organization called the Long Now Foundation, which was actually originally found in California, but there's a London outpost. And we've been part of this ritual, joined this ritual of, of chalking the horse. And I think it speaks to something about deep time, really, the idea of maintenance, in this case, the maintenance of a cultural icon in a way. And I think we can look around in our lives and think about what are the things that I want to maintain to preserve for posterity. And I think, you know, human beings, we love rituals. You know, we are, we're good at ritual, actually. And if you want to change a society, you need to create new language, new narratives, but also new rituals around which we can organize ourselves. I think you're right. I think we've, to a large degree, we've lost our connection to ritual and ceremony and initiation, you know, these kinds of things as more and more people become whatever spiritual, but not religious, or, you know, they're the nothings or whatever you would call it. And, and where for so long, those, those things, ritual ceremony have been associated with a religious service of some kind. And, and so it's really interesting for me to hear this kind of ritual with the Uffington white horse that this entire, you know, community participates in and has for thousands of years. And as far as I understand, it doesn't have a religious, you know, overtone. And I'm just wondering where, where else could those exist or do they exist? Maybe we're not aware. How can we create more of those that would be in service to a long future? Because we can just invent our own rituals. That's the great thing about the human imagination. So I invented one the other day. I turned 50. And on my 50th birthday, I gathered together my kids and my partner. We went on a bike ride about 10 minutes from our house. There is a tree, an ancient yew tree. It's nearly a thousand years old. So we went to the tree. And then the great thing about it is you can climb up it and actually sit inside it above the ground in the branches. And we had my birthday, 50th birthday picnic in the tree wow. and which might sound a little bit crazy but actually it was about trying to get in touch with a deeper sense of time because we knew and we were talking about the fact that this tree had seen the british the english civil war in the 17th century it had been there during the time of the black death in the 14th century it will be there long after we are gone and um, one of the issues we ended up discussing as a you know just as a family it was quite cold actually it was winter time but was about whether if we think about time, you know, being just a, a moment in the cosmic story compared to the thousands of years of a tree might live or the billions of years that the earth might be around, does that mean that, well, nothing we do actually matters, that we may as well trash the planet? 
And actually, the conclusion we came to, and that I think people who contemplate deep time do almost always come to, is that it gives us a sort of sense of humility. It raises a question like, who are we? What kind of arrogance is it to break the great chain of life with our deadly technologies and our ecological destructiveness? This chain which has been going on for billions of years before us, which will probably go on for billions of years in some form or other until our sun dies in five or six billion years from now. But, you know, we've done so much damage since the, in the last couple of hundred years, since the Industrial Revolution. And I think when you stop and think about that, it actually makes you think, okay, I want to be part of keeping this chain going. I want the links to be preserved. Yeah. I do love that idea of and of being able to create a ritual and to do that, something like that for for a birthday is that significant birthday every birthday you see having it in a tree now or <laughs> i think i'm gonna have every birthday up in that tree that's really but, you cool. know to, to tell you an actual secret one of the ritual i used to have on my birthday was that i always went swimming on my birthday even in the snow and ice and maybe i'm just getting a bit sort of soft and i've shifted away from doing that once and now it's a picnic in a tree <laughs> that's awesome okay you talked a little bit about your 12-year-olds. One thing you mentioned in the book is that you and your partner give your votes to your daughters. What is, how do you do that and why? So actually, we've got uh, a boy and a girl, but we do give our votes to them. So during the last UK general election, 2019, we decided to give the, our votes to our kids. And so we all sat around the kitchen table and we debated the party manifestos and discuss the electoral system and they then told us where to put the x on the ballot sheet and in case you're wondering they didn't exactly follow their parents political opinions which was probably a good thing they are independent thinkers now we did it of course because we live in a world and in a political system that systematically ignores the interests of the generation upon generation who will inhabit the future not just our children but all children all living things you know they have no place in the system and here we are at a moment in history where probably never before have human beings had such potentially destructive impacts on the generations to come. Of course, the starting date of that was probably July 16th, 1945, when the first nuclear test, the Trinity test, was exploded. We, at that moment, developed the capacity to destroy the future. But we've been going even further than that in, in recent decades with you know, global heating, with the destruction of the biosphere in all its different forms. So there's a real question here about, okay, how are we going to include those future generations? And on some level, giving your votes to your kids is a symbolic act, right? It's one of those little individual acts, which maybe may not change that much, but actually it's, again, a kind of social contagion because it's there are other people doing this too. I actually picked up the idea from seeing a hashtag on Twitter, a short-term technology, if there ever was one, a hashtag that's called Give the Kids Your Vote. There were youths across Europe in 2019 asking their parents and grandparents to give them their votes in the European parliamentary elections of that year. What a beautiful thing. This was, again, one of those things that I just never never realized, <clears throat> but you pointed it out as a, about how in these, when we vote, you know, it's typically older generations that are making decisions that impact the younger generations, you know, because they're all going to, we're going to die. <laughs> and then the younger generation is going to be left with the impact of the votes that we've cast. And in some countries, uh, I didn't know this until I read it in your book about the legal voting age has been reduced from 18 to 16. 
in at least a couple countries. Yeah, in Brazil, in Austria. But actually, I think if you really want to engage kids in politics, I'm a real fan of citizens' assemblies, sort of deliberative democracy, trying to put power back in people's hands. Because when you've got a citizen assembly where you randomly get members of the public to come and discuss an issue, which they recently done in Ireland, for example, where they had a, a citizens' assembly discussing climate and abortion and lots of other issues. And many of these citizen assembly bodies that work in Spain and Belgium and other countries those citizens tend to have a much longer view than your regular politicians who are caught in 24-7 news cycles. And I think that's a really hopeful form of change. Yeah, the citizens' assemblies, this was a new concept for me as well. And it made a lot of sense on many levels, right? Because if politicians, as you talked about, are concerned with winning the next election, a lot of their time perhaps is, is spent fundraising or pleasing you know, those, those interests and so forth. And, and if we, so maybe I should back up a half a step and say, what is a citizen's assembly? Like, what is it? How does it work? Why would we want to do it? And, and it could it work in established democracies. I mean, yeah, it's a question worth asking. So the idea of a citizen assembly really goes back to the ancient Greek idea of participatory democracy, where for those who are able to engage in politics. Of course, in, in ancient Greece, they were excluding women, slaves, and migrants, so pretty limited. But there was this idea that everybody would be involved in decision-making collectively. They would meet in assemblies and discuss issues and come to consensus and so on. And that idea has been picked up in the last 10 years. So, for example, Iceland decided to basically crowdsource its constitution by having a citizens' assembly where they invited, I think, 100 people, where they you know, use an algorithm to make sure they get a very wide social spectrum of people, young and old and people of different ethnic backgrounds and religions, uh, who then meet periodically, say, five times over a year for a long weekend. And they experts come before them and they ask them questions about the issue, say it's climate change. And then that assembly comes up with policy recommendations or laws and things like that. So, And these are increasingly used around the world. In Scotland at the moment, there is a Scottish Climate Assembly where they are meeting, I think, seven times, um, a group of about 100 people, and they're going to then give recommendations to the Scottish Parliament. So you might ask, well, is this actually practical? You know, could you do it in Washington right now? No, not easily, because actually I think this kind of citizen assembly model works best from the ground up, I think, in the town and city level. And there's a really interesting example of it in Japan called the Future Design Movement, which is actually directly inspired by the Native American idea of seventh-generation decision-making. What they do is they invite local people to discuss and draw up plans for the towns and cities where they live and typically split them in two groups. Half are told they're residents from the present day, and the other half are given these like ceremonial robes to wear, almost kimonos, and told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative change, whether it's healthcare investment or climate change action. And that model is now being used in big cities like Kyoto. It's even being used in Japan's Ministry of Finance, I found out the other day. So why not export it to the towns and cities of the United States or Canada or Brazil or Australia or wherever? Because this is happening, you know, they're in Japan, ultra modern society admittedly with long traditions of ancestor veneration, um, but they're really practical about this. You know, 
We can we can do this change. You know, representative democracy as we currently have, it's only been around for a couple of hundred years. It's a kind of baby in the in the in the terms of political history. Let's let's reinvent it. We know it's past its sell-by date. I mean, just look at the rise of far-right populism across North America, Brazil, Europe, everywhere. You know, certainly it needs revamping because faith in traditional parties has plummeted everywhere. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I've asked almost everything that I intended to ask before we began our interview, but let me ask you, I thought this was a masterful way of framing things. The QWERTY problem. <laughs> yes, the QWERTY problem is a design problem that we are lumbered with, which is the fact that if you look down at your keyboard, it has been arranged actually for the way typewriters worked in the 19th century. The first typewriters were designed so that the keys that were commonly used were kept very far apart so that they wouldn't jam. And of course, we don't need that now. We're on computers. The keys don't jam. And yet our fingers are spreading around in this weird way. We don't have the easiest or the letters we use most often, like the vowels at easy access just under our fingertips on our left hand, for example. And so there's a design problem that we've just held on to this ridiculous design of our keyboards. But this is the same for our political and economic systems, because our political systems, representative democracy, nation states, or our economic systems, consumer capitalism, were designed in the 18th and 19th centuries during the, the Holocene. You know, and we have now shifted into another era, the Anthropocene, where we have become the weather makers. We've created the kinds of problems that those political systems and economic systems weren't designed to deal with. You know, the way electoral democracy works wasn't designed to deal with huge long-term problems like climate change or the potential impacts of bioweapons or synthetic biology and designer babies and all these things which are going to have impacts for decades. Sea level rises going on for 100, 200 years. They just don't make sense. So it's a little bit like having uh, these ridiculous keyboards that we've still got, the QWERTY problem. We need to fundamentally reinvent the core institutions of society, which sounds, well, that sounds impossible, right? But we do reinvent. You don't have to have a QWERTY keyboard. Yeah. I thought that was such a great way of setting that up and explaining, and again, something right in front of us, literally right in front of us that <laughs> we just, we live with. Okay. And then for sure, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about empathy. Like what's the, how does empathy factor into this? And I know you've done a lot of work around empathy, even creating an empathy museum that people can tour online, right? And so forth. So will, will you talk about the role of empathy in your work and why it's important to us, how we can have more of it or anything else you want to say about it? <laughs> I can talk thing. about empathy for hours. I, I have know. spent two or three decades researching it and writing about it and talking about it and thinking about it and trying to live it as much as I can. So the kind of empathy I'm particularly interested in is what psychologists call cognitive empathy or perspective-taking empathy. So it's about trying to imagine yourself in the shoes of another person, someone who might have very different cultural or religious or political views than you, trying to sort of step inside their skin, a kind of to kill a mockingbird kind of idea of taking the perspective of the other. Now, there's another kind of empathy called affective empathy with an A, which is about sharing people's emotions. So you look at a child's anguished face and feel anguish yourself. That's empathy, but affective empathy. But I'm more interested in the other type because this is the one which helps us bridge social divides. 
to try and step into the shoes of the kind of people you may not normally think about. Someone who's homeless living on the street, someone who's beaten by a police officer because of the color of their skin, someone who's living on the other side of the world and has experienced an earthquake. And, you know, I've written books about this. I founded this museum. The museum's kind of interesting because it's playful yet powerful. It, there's, we have a brilliant uh, director called Claire Patey, and she came up with one of our main exhibits called A Mile in My Shoes. It's a gigantic shoebox, which says a mile in my shoes on it. It looks like a shoebox, but you can walk inside it. The world's first empathy shoe shop. And you go in and someone will fit you with a pair of shoes belonging to a stranger. It could be someone who's been in prison for 14 years or a Syrian refugee. And you can literally walk a mile in their actual shoes while listening to an audio narrative of them talking about their life in their own words. So it's very personal. It's sort of quite enveloping. And this shoebox has traveled around the world. It's been in Seattle. It's been in Siberia. It's been in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Right now it's in Sydney, Australia. And it's experiential change, you know, literally putting on someone else's shoes and hearing their story. It's powerful. But if I were to point out a limitation of it, and this is not a critique of the artwork itself, but it's just the nature of it. It's very difficult to put on the shoes of someone from a generation ahead or five generations or seven generations from now. We can't put on their shoes. We can't hear their voices or listen to their stories. How do you do that empathizing with people who aren't even here? How would you create an empathy museum exhibit that gave you that kind of same visceral insight and feeling as when putting on someone else's shoes from today's world and listening to their story that they've been experiencing. Um, and that's a kind of artistic challenge to create an exhibit that would do that. But of course, it is the political challenge of intergenerational justice. And so the, one of the core reasons I wrote uh, this new book, The Good Ancestor, was to try and explore the idea of how do we step into the shoes of future generations? How do we empathize with them? And some of what we've talked about have really has already really touched on that, like the idea of imagining a child in your life living into the 22nd century and using that as a bridge to a transcendent connection with all future generations is one way of making that empathic link. But I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. It is, as you asked that question, it, you know, how do we, how do we do that? Or what does it look like? It, what came up for me is it sounds like a spiritual act. Like there's some, to me, that's how I would describe it is that the effort, whatever the, the selflessness, the, the generosity, you know, the creativity in that, but how to do it. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. You know, but it can also come out of, yes, it is a kind of a spiritual transcendent app, but it can also be powered by other things like curiosity. Sure. I mean, the great oral historian from Chicago, Studs Terkel, uh, you know, who was the master interviewer uh, of people from different realms of life, talked a lot about curiosity, about being interested in other people, being more interested in them than you are interested in yourself. And that's the beginning of empathy, I think, discovering how other people, strangers, even your loved ones, see the world, having adventurous conversations, talking about love and death and legacy and meaning, which of course is what you're doing, you know, on this podcast, what we're doing right now. And it's very important because this is part of how we change through the power of curiosity and conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I know we've covered so much. I want to just be sure if there's anything that we haven't talked about 
related to the good ancestor, deep time, empathy, anything in this part of the interview before we go to the enlightening lightning round or the creativity and writing portion. I want to give you a chance to make sure we we explore that if you want to. Well, I think that we've explored lots of fundamental things, but you know, if it comes down to one thing, it comes down to that question you asked in the beginning, which you drew from my book, which is how can we be good ancestors? That's something we can just carry around with us as a existential talisman, a kind of rule of thumb to ask yourself that question in the mor- first thing in the morning or last thing at night or whenever you want to do it. You know, that kind of question is something that can just get our mind whirring at high speed or very, very slow speed. But a kind of existential question like that, I think, is a guide to this kind of issue of our connection with the billions upon billions of people who've been going to inhabit the future with any luck. That's right. Okay. Well, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us now to the enlightening lightning round. How are you doing? Great. I, know, I don't have no idea what this is going to be about, so I'm very <laughs> excited. Okay, good. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Acorn growing into a mature oak tree. Okay, question number two. Here I'm borrowing the investor and technologist Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? That... We spend too much time looking inside ourselves and we discover ourselves by looking outside ourselves through outrospection as much as introspection. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Carpamos diem, which is the plural of carpe diem, seize the day. Carpamos diem means let's seize the day together because this is about collective change. That's awesome. All right. Question number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? A book called Ways of Seeing by a British art historian called John Berger, written in the 1970s. And that was the book that made me realize that the ideas that I have have been shaped by culture, the advertising industry, communities I've grown up in, I'm the inheritor of ideas, and maybe I don't need to accept all of those assumptions and prejudices that I have been bequeathed by my culture. Very powerful, and it is such an original book, Ways of Seeing. Awesome. Okay, question number, well, let me just ask on the topic of books, what are you reading right now? Right now, I'm reading a biography of the science fiction writer and historian H.G. Wells, who wrote The Time Machine in the 1890s. And he was an amazing guy. He shaped a whole generation before the First World War and really invented the realm or the sphere of futurology. The idea of thinking, well, if you've got archaeology, which looks into the past, let's have a futurology that looks into the future. So it's actually a book called A Man of Parts by David Lodge. It's a fictionalized biography of H.G. Wells. Sounds fun. Someone once pointed out to me that if time travel were possible, we've already invented it. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I, and I'm addicted to time travel films and books. I just watched Tenet, which I can highly recommend. Very, very complex. Oh, I haven't watched that yet. That's a Christopher Nolan film, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah. I love his work. I haven't watched that yet. Okay. It just moved up my watch list. Okay. Question number five. So you have traveled a lot in your life. 
what's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? When I arrive in a new city, I go on a sensory journey. So I will land in the city and think, okay, I'm going to throw away the map. I'm just going to follow smells for the first morning. And then maybe the next day I'll just follow sounds. And what I'm trying to do here, of course, is to reject the disastrous invention of the early 19th century, which was the travel guide by Karl Baedeker, the German travel entrepreneur, uh, who told us what we should see, that we should visit cathedrals or crumbling palaces. No, let's not visit those things. Let's explore the world in a different way. Start with your senses. That is really fun. How has in 120 interviews, no one has said that? <laughs> because they haven't read my book, The Wonder Box, where I discuss it in the chapter on the senses. No, the chapter on travel. Actually, that, that book in the US is called How Should We Live? It's what history can teach us about life. That is awesome. That is really fun. Okay, question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Something I started doing was making furniture, trying to make chairs and tables and all sorts of things like that. And to my shame, I've stopped doing it, even though I love it so much, that idea of craft. And I've made a chair which has no nails in it, which has no glue in it using 18th century methods. And it's a chair I sit on most of the day. And yet I've stopped doing this thing that I love. Isn't that ridiculous? Why don't we do the things that we love? What makes us stop? I think it's probably different for each person, isn't it? But there's, I'm sure there's themes and commonalities, responsibility, guilt, <laughs> the perception of selfishness. I once met this composer, uh, This I once met this music professor who I saw cycling past my house this morning, but I interviewed him about 30 years ago for a project. And I remember him saying to me, he said, composing is the thing I love most, but do least. And I think it was really confronting for him because it wasn't just a question of time there was something about engaging with the thing that you love almost destroying it in some way or not meeting your own expectations there are common themes i think you're right yeah and you know i have i have something like that in my life i collect pinball machines i love pinball and i, I literally i don't play a game a week on i mean I'll, I'll play occasionally with friends or family or something like that but and then I, one day i realized and i've had them for decades you know, and I thought it's the idea of pinball that I love, you know, it's the but, art, but that's it's all the right. music. That, what, what's wrong with that? Yeah. So it's interesting. The things we love the most and do the least. Well, you know, I've got thousands of books. Most of them I haven't read, but I, I love books. I'll never read the books that I have, but um, I like to honor them by just, I guess, you know, it's possessive and individualistic. I want to own those books, but I love putting the authors I love next to each other or authors who may not like each other next to each other. <laughs> That's great. Have you, I just saw on Twitter, someone had tweeted a, a little video of Umberto Eco in his library. Have you seen that video? No, I haven't seen that video and I love Umberto Eco. Yeah. It's like a 45 second clip of him searching down a single book in his library and it's it, it, vast. It's really remarkable. I read somewhere, actually, I don't know if it's true or not, but apparently he, he didn't like, uh, doesn't like uh, wasting time. Is he still alive, Umberto Eco? Yes, I don't he must know be, for yes. sure. But he didn't like wasting time, so for, doesn't like wasting time, so he tries to do everyday things twice as fast as normal, like brushing his teeth and eating <laughs> and so on. I think like, that's ridiculous, especially for someone who's a kind of historian at heart. That's funny. That's great. Okay, so that was about books. Let's 
go to question number seven, which is what's one thing you wish every American knew? What is my answer to that? Oh, no. oh yes, I know. <laughs> that was sudden. The history of their continent. Ah. Uh. It's the history, of course, of the invasion of the continent and also the geological history of their continent. I mean, the deep history of their continent to get away from the idea that this is a young nation, just a couple of hundred years old, uh, which, of course, you know, has been done by so many great writers and thinkers like Howard Zinn in his book, People's History of the United States, you know, trying to reconfigure what that history is. But I think, you know, if we don't understand where we have come from, where are we going to go? All right. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? To make a relationship work, two things are required. One is to listen out for the other person's feelings. And the second thing is to listen out for their needs and let them know you understand their feelings and needs. That's the basis of actually a therapeutic approach called nonviolent communication invented by Marshall Rosenberg. I steal it from him because I found it works. Yeah, it's powerful. I was I came across that book after listening to Esther Perel talk about how it was a big part of what's informed her work. That question at the beginning of what disconnects us from our compassionate nature and how can we remain connected? It's uh it's easy to grasp intellectually, but in the moment of an upset or a misunderstanding, it's for me at least it's not always easy to to practice. Oh, it's a nightmare. It is so hard. And then you get the thing is you might ask the other person about their feelings and needs and they don't care about your feelings and needs. Then what do you do? Yeah. It's tricky business. Yeah, for sure. But I think, I think what we need to, we need to think of ourselves as kind of empathic journeyers though, in that sense of always on that journey of trying to understand the other. I think that is one of the keys to making relationships work. It's not the only, not the only thing, but I've certainly found that it's, it's the, one of the ultimate social glues. Yeah. Well, then this question, I'm going to go back to the number six, the one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well. Is there anything else, anything to that? Something I started or stopped doing in order to live or age well. Ah, there's a thousand things. There's all the rituals I've invented. Every morning when I get up, I go into the garden and try and find one thing that has changed. It could be a spider web that's been spun or a bit of a weed which has grown. And I just try and be there with it really drawing on the great wisdom of the Vietnamese Zen monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who said, don't just do something, sit there, you know, and, you know, try and find a moment of stillness, you know, just a little basic mindfulness thing. But, you know, I think we need to find our own ways of, of doing these things. So, you know, I like to do that. I mean, there's probably a lot of things that I've stopped doing in my life, but something, you know, it's the things that I find hard to stop doing, which are interesting. Why do I keep losing my temper with my kids, right? Now, I lose my temper with my kids. Not, I'm not like all the time, but for in really inappropriate ways. Like, and I know I lose my temper with my kids, not when they've done something bad, but when something's going on in my life, like various stresses of also certain kinds. I would love to stop that, you know? I would love to stop that. But it's so wired. It's so tough. Question number nine is about money. It's aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're sure to always do with it or you never do with it? 
I think the most important thing I've learned about money is that we live in a monoculture of money. By that, I mean, we only have one currency, you know, in general, in any one country. And in fact, one could invent a whole load of different currencies and have a, an ecosystem of different kinds of money for different uses. And people are starting to do this, trying, you know, inventing electronic currencies, which are only used by charities and nonprofits and are traded that way. And you know exactly where that money has come from, that it hasn't come from an oil company, but, you know, it's, it's gone through the roof of charity. So let's invent the kinds of money that we need to solve the problems that we have. And, you know, this is, goes back to ideas of, for example, local exchange trading schemes or time dollar schemes, this kind of thing where, you know, you've got barter systems developing where I will, in, you know, you, a community will invent a currency in order to enable, you know, I will go and, you know, mend your wall and you'll pay me in groats or whatever your currency is. And in exchange, I'll do something, you'll do something for me, some skill that you have. And let's not just be trapped by the monoculture of the dollar or the pound or the euro. But I partly learned that because my wife happens to be an economist and she's very interested in inventing new kinds of money. I love, by the way, the thing that the way she framed our, basically the way our economy functions about take, make, use, lose. Yes, that's right. Of course, she's written a book called Donut Economics, which is all about trying to create regenerative economies and get away from that take, make, use, lose linear economies, which are so you know, destructive for our material footprint. I can only imagine what the dinner table conversations are like in your home. <laughs> Who's going to do the washing up? <laughs> like That's anybody so else's dinner then. conversation. Yeah. No, we do actually talk about ideas quite a lot, I have to admit. That's fun. Okay, so congratulations. You have survived the enlightening lightning round. I love those questions. They're wonderful. I've learned so much and I'm having fun sharing people's answers to that because I think most people are interested in all of those things. So, uh, and I thought many of your answers were great. I totally want to do that sensory tour now when I travel somewhere. If, okay, so the final question really here in the lightning round is if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is read a book I've written, but books aren't for everybody, of course. So I would say that what I'd like to offer to people is a thought experiment, which I call the dinner party of the afterlife. So imagine you're dead and you go into the afterlife and you're invited to a dinner party and there in the room are all the other yous who you could have been if you had made different choices. The you who became an alcoholic and wrecked their life. The you who never bothered to make your marriage work and it fell apart. The you who nearly died in a car accident and radically changed your life afterwards and went down a path you really cared about. You know, the you who threw in your boring job and actually did what you loved. And you can look around at this room in this dinner part of the afterlife and ask yourself, are there any of these alternative yous who you'd rather be or possibly become? Some of them you might envy. Some you'd maybe you'd like to be or become, but contemplate that dinner party of the afterlife and see where it leads you. Because ultimately, everything I write about is about making different kinds of choices. Awesome. Well, thank you. I just love the name of that, the dinner party of the afterlife. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't you love to be there? <laughs> sounds kind of freaky. Like, I might try it out. See how you go. See who you meet. See All which right. of the cells that you meet. I've got a feeling you've already. Had a lot of encounters with your many selves over the years. 
I've definitely done the rocking chair test thing. You know, What's that? When you're, you imagine you're 90, you're 90, 95 years old sitting in your rocking chair on the porch, reflecting on your life. And, you know, and again, this is just based on extrapolating forward the path you're already on. But now you're at the end of your life looking back. Are you grateful? Are you full of regret? You know, so yeah. it's a, a little bit like this, but not. It's exactly like that. I, I, that's exactly why I developed it by that idea of, you know, writing your own obituary, the rocking chair test, these, or the death of Ivan Illich by Tolstoy is also a story about exactly that. And then I've tried to sort of give it a slightly different twist, um, but it is ultimately a regret analysis methodology. You know, I'm, I'm part of a group of entrepreneurs and we take a retreat each year and we program it. So we have specific conversations. We'll read a book and, you know, sometimes have other people come in and talk to us and things like that. And a couple of years ago, one of the activities we agreed to do, and I proposed it, was to write our obituary and share it. I was the guy that proposed it and I didn't do it. It was so confronting, you know? Did you try to do it and couldn't find the words or did you just say, I cannot do this. The wall seems too big or what happened? Yeah, I did. I sat down and opened my, you know, open word and I like looked at the screen and I just didn't, I just, I don't know exactly. I mean, anything I would say now is just crap. Right. But like at the end of the day, I didn't type the words. Part of it, I think I'm now I'm making this all about me, <laughs> but part of it is I, I want to live to be 200. Right. And I have an idea of what my death will be like in in a foresty area, in some kind of pagoda, like a wooden structure, surrounded by generations of loved ones, right? Dying still actually in good health. It's not full of disease and, you know, I'm not decrepit and stuff like that. Like that's it. And I think the path from here to there just seems so impossible or unrealistic, even though I know, of course, people are working on longevity and you know, there's a lot more that I could do to maintain my functionality and stuff like this. But when it came to write my obituary and the path that got me from here to that was like, oh my gosh, where do, what do I even say? Well, you know? maybe you actually did write your own obituary. It was an empty page. It's about the impossibility of that dream. And so you exactly did it. I love that perspective. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that. All right. Well, the, the final thing, I know I've said final thing like three times in the lightning round. Final thing before we transition to the final part of the interview is as a way of expressing gratitude or attempting to express my gratitude to you, I have gone to kiva.org, the micro, lend, micro lending site, and I've made a $100 micro loan to an entrepreneur in Samoa, a woman named Loli. She's 31 years old. She has six kids. She will use this money to grow and sell cabbages and eggplants and cucumbers. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. And by the way, I won't make any interest on that loan. The person who f runs that funding operation in Samoa will, and hopefully it will be a virtuous cycle. So thanks for giving me a reason to do well, that. Well, thanks for doing that. And it really links to that discussion we were just having about the reinvention of money. I mean, the whole micro banking, micro lending uh, explosion really is a way of trying to reinvent our relationship with money as it were. And and trying to distribute it in new ways and be creative with how we use it. So I think that's a great, I love that. Yeah, that was fun. Okay. So the last few questions, and I realize I didn't ask about the Long Now Foundation and I, I do want to. Yeah, you don't need to at all. Because it's so fascinating, the clock and stuff like this, but maybe I'll just drop that in the show notes and 
mentioned because I know you you touched on it. So okay, with with your permission, let's go ahead and explore a few questions related to writing and creativity. When did you first when did you first know you were a writer? Well, when I was about 18 or 19, I started writing a lot of short stories and they were terrible. Absolutely hopeless. They were so derivative. I was just copying Hemingway or Bruce Chatwin or whoever I was happening to be reading at the time. But I knew then I wanted to be a writer, even though I luckily realized those short stories were quite abysmal. And so I left fiction aside and thought, okay, if I'm going to be a writer, I need to live a bit. So in fact, I stopped writing and I went and did stuff. I went and worked with refugees in Guatemala. I went and lived in Spain and uh, lived in the United States and did all sorts of things. And then I came back to writing at a later stage. Wow. What is your writing routine like these days? So my writing routine is absolutely standard, I think, for a lot of writers, which is when I'm in real writing mode, I've been a full-time writer for more than a decade. I sit down at my desk at nine o'clock in the morning. I use an app called Freedom, which cuts off my internet access. And I have it on from nine until 1.30 p.m. And I write for that, all those you know, four and a half hours, not writing continuously. And then I try to write 750 words. And if I write more than that, it's normally rubbish. If I write less than that, I don't care. As long as I've been there at the screen, at the keyboard, and absolutely focused with no distractions around at all. And, you know, through at least recent history, last couple of hundred years, so many writers do something pretty much like that. Who has been influential? Who have you known personally? I realize there's probably a lot of inspiration in, in books, both in fiction and nonfiction and so forth, but who are some of your teachers who's been influential in your development as a writer and, and what have you learned from them? So one of them is a historian called Theodore Zeldin, who I worked with for many years, who wrote a very beautiful book in the 1990s called An Intimate History of Humanity. So it looked at the history of love and death and curiosity and fear and tried to show us how the way we think about love and death and curiosity and fear have been shaped by the past. We've inherited ways of thinking about love. You know, for example, the romantic ideal and the idea of a soulmate well, that was an invention of the 18th century. You can find elements of it in, in the ancient Greeks, but, you know, and so we go around looking for soulmates. Well, maybe there is no such thing, but that's a historical idea. And um, so his writing really influenced me because firstly, interest, it opened me to the subject area of the history of the emotions, which I'd never really thought about and how I'm a product of the past. But also in terms of writing, he was a very eminent historian and academic but he wrote incredibly accessibly. He didn't show off. And I learned from him not to show off, you know, about all the clever things that I knew and all the articles that I'd read and, and so on. But to really think about writing in a way that I wanted my mother-in-law to read, you know, stuff that she wouldn't be intimidated by, but was still equally profound. You know, this is not about dumbing anything down. You know, this is about actually just getting rid of the clutter. Particularly, you know, for me, I'd been an academic, a political scientist for some time. I had to spend many years writing out my academic apparatus and language, which was, I think, holding back my capacity to communicate. And I learned that a lot from Theodore Zeldin. That's awesome. What for you is the most challenging? What the most or, 
one of the most challenging aspects of writing and what's something that you find to be very rewarding? I guess the most challenging aspect of writing is writing. You know, Hemingway once said somewhere, writing's easy. All you have to do is sit down at the typewriter until your fingers bleed. Well, yeah, that's how it is for me, that it is a struggle because I'm not like Mozart, you know, who'd be riding along in a carriage and would dream up his next composition. And then the writing bit was easy. It was already all done. He just sort of wrote down the notes. No, I'm like, I think a lot of people, which is I work out the ideas as I'm writing them, that writing is part of the thought process. So my brain is in my fingers. And I think that's quite common. So that's kind of what it's all about for me. But that is a generally painful process because ideas are knotted together. And probably too much, I would say, I try and aim for a kind of simplicity of expression. I'm trying to take out the adverbs and adjectives and get to the heart of things. But I think in some of that, if I was going to critique myself, it would be not introducing enough ambiguity, trying too much to say things absolutely clearly. And that's a kind of disease that comes from the Western analytical tradition, let's say, uh, which I like to let go of uh, to some extent. What for you is one of the most rewarding aspects of, of being a writer or of writing? Ah, I have to sort of answer that in the opposite. When I'm not writing, the words that come into my head is I feel like my soul is darkening, going black, like it's being, it's dying. And that might sound a little bit over the top and melodramatic, but that's literally how it is. And one of the things that happens when a book comes out, it so happens that this new book of mine, The Good Ancestor, has been very popular in many, many countries and and Zoom and so on has also enabled me to talk to people around the world. But what it means is that I haven't yet embarked on my next book project. And partly I feel a very strong moral obligation to the advocacy work of writing this book, which is to, you know, talk to people, organizations, governments, activists about what it means to be a good ancestor, whether they are school teachers or or you know, kids who are going on climate marches, or the other day I had a conversation with a minister for the future from the United Arab Emirates, a totally different kind of person to talk to. Um, I need to do that. I love that that position exists. Yeah, minister of the future, isn't that cool? She's amazing as well. Uh, She's head of the government's 50-year development plan. How many governments have a 50-year development plan? But so writing for me in a way is about avoiding that feeling of the waste of my life, (laughs) you know, that darkening soul. And that might just sound just too negative in a way. Of course, writing gives me joy, but it's mostly when I finished, but I feel I must do it. It's such a deep part of me now. And I'm very driven in that way. I'm very ambitious, not for, you know, worldly success, but for, you know, if I'm really honest about creating a kind of body of work, which has meaning beyond my own lifetime. It doesn't have to be attached to my name, though I think part of me, you know, wants some of that. But it's actually the I want a container for my ideas to go on into the future, to be useful to people in some way. Books are my chosen medium rather than, you know, film or music or whatever it happens to be. Again, like that really resonates with me and and uh, personally, and it also squares with things I've read. I remember reading I thought it was such a fabulous book, The Daily Rituals, How Artists Work by Mason Curry. 
Have you seen Ooh, that? I haven't read that. No. Oh, I think it's fantastic. Down. Yeah. He's gone and written probably 500 word, like these miniature profiles of these writers and some scientists. Darwin is in there and, and some others, but Benjamin Franklin is one of them. And the one I remember from Franklin, he talked about his need to write was like the need to be milked, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So like when you talk about your soul is darkening, it's kind of a poetic description, but I think it's probably the same thing Franklin felt like there's actually, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think he's like those people that have a lot of ready form thoughts. They've that, that, well, it depends what you think milking is like, whether you think it's a difficult or a, an easy extraction, right, as it were. Right. I've got a feeling he'd actually worked out a lot of his thoughts and then sort of put them down a bit like Mozart, I would have thought, with, with Franklin, whereas, and, and did less of the thinking on the page itself. I might be wrong about that, actually. I mean, he certainly was a maniac, you know, in all the good ways, his sort of obsessiveness. Yeah. And that made him, you know, achieve extraordinary things. Yeah, so prolific. Well, and two, I think of that, the quotation Maslow, Abraham Maslow about, and I'll get this wrong, but something to the effect about a painter must paint, you know, a musician must make music if he is ultimately to be at peace with himself. And this about, I've had this kind of inquiry for myself of are writers writers just waiting to be expressed or realized or can anyone, right? And in the same way, I think anyone can eat or talk, of course, and virtually anyone can write, but I think there is a special kind of person who is a writer, you know, and I think about Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, when he was asked by Barbara Walters, what would you do if you knew you only had six months to live? And his response was type faster. (laughs) Oh, that's right. You mentioned foundation in your book. I'm exactly the same as Asimov in that way. Someone did literally ask me last week what I would do if I had six months left. And I said, I would finish writing the book I was working on or write another one or <laughs> rewrite one that I've already written, which hasn't been published. I mean, I would literally do that after I'd seen my family and spent lots of time with my kids and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that the challenge I would put to you with this, and I'm sure you thought about this, is that idea is, you know, writers are writers or, you know, artists are artists, has a sort of a a bit of a feudal aspect to it, doesn't it? This idea that we're kind of born into something, a structure, and that we must therefore live out our fate. And, you know, of course, I know you're not saying that this is, you're not trying to express a kind of a feudal world, feudal world view. But, you know, I, there is something in it, though, too, that I, I, I feel like a writer in that sense that you're talking about, or that Asimov probably felt. It feels so natural. But, you know, I grew up with books all around me. My stepmother, when I used to come home from school each day, used to put a book on the bed. Uh, of some kind of anything. It could be about the Aztecs, could be about the history of the Bessemer Converter, it could be a novel. Every day I had a book as a gift to contemplate and she never said anything, it was like a secret. And how could I not become a writer? Yeah, that's fun. So how do you organize your research, your stories, you know, this kind of thing as you're composing a book? What are the tools and technology you use? Do you use Google Drive, Evernote, a, a physical corkboard? Like, how do you actually organize your thoughts and your research as you go about writing a book? So, one thing I always have is a very small moleskin diary with me, the, the smallest kind that you can get. So, I'm always writing down thoughts all day in the middle of the night, whenever I can, 
by hand on paper. I also have in my study a gigantic whiteboard where I'm constantly drawing pictures. I try and put a lot of my ideas into into graphics, pictures, relationships, arrows, that kind of thing. So I use the whiteboard. And then I do sometimes also use on my phone, you know, the little notebook you know, app and I write it there. And then one final thing I think which is really important to me is I, particularly when I'm, when I'm well, deep in writing a, a book, I have very large bits of paper on an easel, um, gigantic bits of paper where I do very large chapter plans, big kind of spidergram, kind of mind maps. But the trick is if I'm going to write a chapter of a book, I will do a gigantic mind map of what I think should go in it. And then when I sit down to write the chapter, I put the mind map away somewhere where I can't see it. And I put all of my notes away and I try and just write from the top of my head, you know, slowly and with clarity, but so that I'm not constantly too hemmed in by the structure, which I think it requires. Of course, when I need to look something up, I'll look it up. I'm not a genius with a photographic memory at all. But so I, I have all that paraphernalia around, but when it comes to actually writing itself, put it all away, just confront the blank screen. Hmm. And as you do that, well, two quick questions. What's your use of a relationship to caffeine in the writing life? <laughs> caffeine plays a great philosophical role in my existence. So first thing I do uh, when I get up in the morning is I go and do an exercise routine with my partner, crazy Californian aerobic thing. Then I'll go outside and I'll look for that one little thing in the garden that's changed, a little mindfulness thing. Then I'll go and get a coffee. And I go to my local coffee shop, uh, which is a, they have a roastery around the corner. And I'll drink that uh, oat milk flat white. And then I'll come back to my desk and not have a coffee on the actual desk itself. I'm just drinking water for the four and a half hours where I'm looking at the screen. And then at 1.30, when I finish writing for the day, I give myself a decaf. Thank you for, for sharing that. And then what what's your relationship with music? Do you write with music? Do you write in silence? I write in silence. And in the afternoons, I'll often come back and edit work for you know a couple of hours, edit what I've written or what I've written the day before. And then I will sometimes listen to Brian Eno. I listen to music which has no words in it which is ambient in some sense, which is regenerative in the deepest sense of, you know, Brian Eno's work, for example, of uh, exploring pattern, not in a repetitive way, but in a creative way. And that's about the only thing I can possibly work to. And also not just Brian Eno, but probably Max Richter, the composer Max Richter as well. No words, just long sounds on 10 hour loops. And then this question about advice or encouragement for others. So for anybody who is either in the middle of their own book project or who has maybe harbored this as a dream or intention for a long time, but hasn't yet begun the journey, what advice or encouragement do you offer them? That you are unique and that your voice is unique. And don't worry if what you're writing doesn't feel original or special, because it will just be different from other people's. And I have been so held back in the past by thinking that I'm not being original enough or I'm not coming up with enough incredible world-changing ideas. But I've learned over the years, maybe I still struggle with some to some extent, that to know that my voice is my voice, 
and let it speak. It feels really liberating, you know, to just yeah. to acknowledge whatever I say. It is it is unique because I say it. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's very freeing. It's it is very liberating. Yeah. How when you are in the act of writing, how aware are you, or what's your sense of connection with your reader? So when I'm writing, I have readers in mind, but not just readers. I have people from my life in mind. So I imagine my grandmother, long dead, is over my shoulder looking at what I'm writing. Now, the thing about my grandmother was that she was a very bohemian, non-conforming person. She was a communist, nudist, vegetarian, all three wrapped into one. She was a wild thing. But I imagine her looking at my work, and I'm not, not to check whether it's ideologically correct, but whether I am breaking out of conformity, whether I am doing more than just repeating and mirroring the culture around me. So I imagine her looking over my shoulder and that's the most powerful presence that I have. And then I also, on the other end, I do have the idea of readers, particularly my mother-in-law, who isn't actually that interested in my work. So that's why I like to imagine what she would think of it. And I always read out after I've every paragraph I've written, I read it out loud and I imagine her listening to it seeing whether she might, you know, turn her head and say, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's fun. So last few questions here. You gave a TED Talk. You've given more than one. But your TED Talk, How to Be a Good Ancestor, I thought was fabulous. It's clearly a different TED Talk done in the time of COVID, right? But will you talk a little bit about your experience creating that and delivering that? So that TED Talk, How to Be a Good Ancestor, is a very short one. It's only seven minutes long because when TED decided that they were going to continue doing big global TED events, but they knew they couldn't have people on the stage, they decided to shorten the talks, you know, because people were doing so much, looking at so much stuff online. So when I wrote that talk, I wrote it sitting on the beach while my kids were around throwing sand at me and stuff like that. I wanted to be away from all of my books and computer and claptrap. I wrote it by hand in the first draft. And it went through many, many drafts. And I spoke it out loud dozens and dozens of times just to, whenever I spoke and I paused for a moment, I changed the wording. When something kind of didn't sound quite right, even if I couldn't put my finger on it. And so, you know, I was constantly kind of performing it, as it were. And, um, you know, that's a really an important process to go through because a TED talk, of course, is spoken and you're trying to write words which have to do more than words on a page. You know, they have to be part of a theatrical experience for the listener. And I guess the other thing I thought a lot about was the kind of language I was using. You know, when you've written a book, which is a hundred thousand words long or something, or a seven hour audio book, my book is, and then you're trying to put it in a seven minute talk, what do you do? And those are big choices. And I decided to focus in that talk on the kinds of topics where I thought there were ideas there that could be amplified. So I talked in it about citizen assemblies and the future design movement in Japan, because I thought, ah, the audience of a TED talk, if this talk goes well, over a million people could watch it. In fact, they have. And that means I can reach lots of people with good ideas. So <laughs> I'm going to do what I think people can get up and use in some practical way. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. I am curious, so here's a really nuanced thing about the subtitle of The Good Ancestor is different between the US and the UK version. I realize publishers 
have most publishers have ultimate authority of, over so much of a book, including what its title is. But uh, did you have any say in that, or what was your experience like about the subtitle is different between these two countries? Right, it's a great question. So the UK edition subtitle is how to think. So it's a good ancestor how to think long term in a short term world. My US publisher said we want something different. We want something a bit more punchy, something that's a bit more speaking to. America's short-termism, the chronic obsession with the now, and also something that has a bit of a sense of social movement to it. You know, I think there was some of the Black Lives Matter stuff going on as well. So the sense that this is a radical prescription. There's a potential movement of time rebels here. And so we went back and forth over the subtitle a lot to get it right. And so it was a kind of a joint effort. And I'm actually really happy with the US subtitle. Now, in the past, I haven't always been happy with the subtitles which have been foisted on me. So, for example, my book Empathy in the UK was originally subtitled A Handbook for Revolution, my choice. But then my US publisher wanted to change it to Empathy, Why It Matters and How to Get It. Now, I didn't like that because it smacked too much of individualism to me, too much of self-help culture. And my publisher was saying, well, um, United States is different to Europe and, and so on. And I still, to be totally honest, find it difficult to utter the words of that subtitle, why it matters and how to get it, because it seems so antithetical to the sense of collective change, which drives that book and, and all my books. But when it comes to The Good Ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking, I like that. We debated a lot the idea of a prescription whether it sounded like a medical prescription or a prescription I'm telling you what to do. But we, in the end, we agreed it was all okay. Right on. Yeah, I was curious personally, but also I think for anyone who is interested in living the writer's life, just learning sometimes, hey, these are different between countries and the author doesn't always have authority, you know, and things like that. Absolutely not. Oh my goodness, I got the... You know, the Brazilian edition cover sent to me the other day, which I basically have no control over, and I didn't like it. And there's not much I can do about that. You know, uh, it's just the way the contracts work and stuff. It's a very practical thing. There's certain things you have control over and some things you don't. So the last last questions here are about just about marketing and promotion, where I know so often as writers, it's easy to think that the manuscript or the publication of the book is the finish line. But then if people don't know about it or don't care about it, it's not very satisfying. And uh, what have you learned about marketing and promoting books that has been useful or interesting to you? I think the main thing that I've learned is almost already answered in your question, which is the book isn't finished when you finished writing it, that I always spend a year publicizing my books. I dedicate at least a year to doing it. And I've also learned that even though I've had wonderful publishers and wonderful publicists who've supported my books, that I need to create a whole strategy myself in order to do that. And again, just in very, very practical terms, over the years, I've found publicists who I like working with. So often when I'm working with a publisher, often a big one like Penguin Random House or something like that, I will ask that the publicist who helps, you know, promote the book and the media is they hire a freelance person that I've worked with in the past that I have a relationship with, who I know 
reads the book, who knows, understands how I think, who, when they're pitching things to the New York Times or the Guardian newspaper, know my voice, what I'm willing to write or talk about or not. In a way, actually, finally getting to it, that relationship with the publicist is actually the, the, one of the most important things I've learned about, to really talk to them, become friends with them, you know, in a genuine way, uh, find someone that you like working with. Because in the end, look, how many people bought Thoreau's Walden? About 500 people. How many people bought Orwell's A Homage to Catalonia? About 500 people, you know. So many great books. Those are the ones that got out there after failing immediately. Most books are not read. And that's the tragedy of the writer's life. And so you must, if you care about the ideas and the language, your narrative, you must dedicate time to something that goes beyond writing on the page. It might sound and feel dirty to you, but if you love writing, you will do more than be a writer. Well said. The Edge gave you a fantastic blurb for this book, and he's not the only a person who's well known that's that's spoken kindly uh, favorably of the book how do you secure those yes how do you get a quote from somebody you know funnily enough i mean in the past when people have been asked for quotes from my book you know normally about one in ten people who get uh, who are asked will say yes weirdly when it came to this new book almost everybody said yes but then how do you get those people well sometimes the publisher have their own contacts so, you know, a publisher that may have have worked with authors in a similar field and they will ask that one of their authors to look at your book. And that's how you get some quotes from people you don't know. And then there are getting quotes from people you do know. And that's a very tricky thing. I know, happen to know quite a lot of well-known writers and almost all of them I would never ask for a quote because there's too much nepotism it gets complicated what if they don't like the book and so on and i rarely give quotes for books from friends of mine so actually one of the ways good ways to get quotes and is to ask a friend like if i i you know because i know well-known writers i might ask a well-known writer who do you think i should get a quote from someone who i maybe i don't know who might find this book interesting and they might do it in the introduction and then that person who maybe doesn't know me but is a well-known person might give the quote. Now, when it comes to The Edge, how did I get a quote from The Edge? I don't know The Edge. Well, I do know now, but I didn't before. It so happened that I did know the musician Brian Eno because he's involved in the Long Now Foundation. I remember a research fellow and he's very interested in long-term thinking. And I had asked him to provide quotes for the manuscript of the, I'm uh, not quotes, sorry, to comment on the manuscript of my book. I wanted his intellectual input into it. So I sent him some early drafts and as he was reading it, he sent me a text one day. He said, would you mind if I shared the manuscript with my friend, The Edge? Because, of course, Brian Eno had, been, had produced U2, uh, many of their albums. And I said, yeah, sure, send it along. <laughs> and that's how um, The Edge happened to read the book, because he happens to be interested in intergenerational justice. Yeah, and he awesome. was kind enough to offer a quote. That's fantastic. And what a brilliant approach about just asking, who do you think I should ask, you know, of, of a friend and putting that bit of distance, but getting that, that by the way, just reminds me of, uh, I, I've interviewed a few people who are indigenous and they talk about if you're looking for a healer because they never refer to themselves as healers or shaman or medicine people or whatever, you'll say, do you know anyone who could help me with my knee? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's so funny. 
Okay. Well, Roman, this has been amazing. I'm really grateful to you. And you really have inspired me from birthdays in trees <laughs> to chalking the horse to the long-term view, you know, and what you've done with what you're doing with your career, your encouragement and advice for writers. Thank you so much for making time to share your experience and your insight with me and with everybody listening. Well, it's been a huge pleasure to go on this conversational journey with you. It's been really wonderful. And you know, this historian who I worked with, Theodore Zeldin, who wrote Intimate History of Humanity, once did say to me, he said, a satisfying conversation is one which makes you say what you've never said before. And I think we certainly did that. And I certainly done that. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 